Let's face it, the IRS is not necessarily the most popular agency. But while most just grouse about having to deal with it, some take it to an even more dangerous level by making and acting on threats of physically harming IRS agents. So what processes are in place for agents to report these people? A recent audit by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, or TIGDA, looked to answer that question. To learn what it found, I spoke with Kent Segarra, who is the acting manager of TIGDA's Office of Inspections and Evaluations. In TIGDA, we also had sort of the concern in terms of You know, there's a lot of uh, information out there in terms of uh, misinformation as well, in terms of against the IRS and the federal government. So that raised our concerns, you know, in terms of making sure that the IRS is sort of in the best position it can be in to protect its employees. And so that was sort of the impetus of starting the evaluation to look at this program. And so what did you all find in analyzing what the agency provides as far as support and directions on what IRS workers, what steps they need to take when either actually assaulted or facing the threat of physical harm? So the IRS requires all of its employees to take this annual mandatory briefing on physical security. And this briefing includes information like IRS security policies and procedures. And it also includes actions that employees should take to prepare for and respond to potential security incidents and emergencies. And so included within this briefing is a requirement to report assaults and threats to the IRS's Situational Awareness Management Center. It's also called SAMSI. You know, the IRS loves its acronyms. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also to TIGDA. And that's sort of the background. So the IRS employees understand what their responsibilities are. And so during our evaluation, you know, we wanted to see whether this training was actually provided to all employees. And it just so happens that there was another evaluation being done on active shooter readiness and training. And that same training was included in their review. And they basically took a look at, you know, whether all the employees were taking that training. So we sort of piggybacked off of that review. And then in its May 2023 report, you know, they found that 98% of all employees took the training. So that's a good thing. You know, however, they also found that only 71% of contract employees who worked at IRS facilities completed that training. So as part of their review, you know, they made the recommendation to ensure that contractors, you know, take the training. And if they don't take the training, they're sort of denied entry into IRS buildings. Gotcha. And as far as this training goes, does that pertain to being able to recognize when a bad situation is about to occur? Or does the training involve just, you know, who to report to after the fact? Yeah, the training does provide like definitions in terms of what's considered an assault and what's considered a threat. So at least there's a basis that they can form when it's occurring. You know, when it's happening sort of on the fly, employees have to sort of make that decision to sort of, you know, and the first thing they sort of explain is that you try to de-escalate the situation, you know, as best you can. But sometimes it proceeds and then when it gets sort of out of hand, that's when after it's all said and done, they have to report it out to the proper parties. So once that occurs, what does the agency have in store next? Like I mentioned before, are there support options or do they just kind of take it from there? Once an incident like that occurs, they're supposed to report it to both the IRS and TIGDA. So there are processes and procedures in place within both organizations, making sure that the incident is recorded onto their system and so they can process and work it as quickly as they can. And that is one of the things that we looked at in terms of, you know, the guidance that was provided to employees. You know, the training is one aspect of it. You know, and you take that once a year and that's fine. But, you know, we're sort of looking at the instruction and guidance that are 
out there that employees can refer to whenever needed to. And so, you know, one of the things we looked at was what's out there for employees to look at. And we did find some inaccuracies and inconsistencies in terms of what employees are told to do. For an example, the inaccurate part had to do with, you know, they were saying that you could report an incident via fax. Well, the fax number really didn't operate and didn't really work, but it was still on their instructions. You know, so we told the IRS, you know, if you're going to keep it, make sure it's on. If you're not going to keep it, go ahead and turn it off and then take it out of your guidance. And then the inconsistent message, you know, there are various ways that employees can report these type of incidents. In terms of reporting it to TIGDA, you know, they can contact their local TIGDA special agents. They can call either the TIGDA 24-7 toll-free answering service or the TIGDA toll-free hotline number, or they can submit an online form on TIGDA's website. And then from the IRS's perspective, you know, employees can call the SAMC toll-free or 202 hotline number. They can also send an email to the SAMC email box, or they can submit sort of an online incident report form on its internal website. And then once that's done, then that's when the processing sort of occurs. And TIGDA will follow up with the employee to do the interview to make sure and get their sort of statements. IRS does the same, and then, you know, TIGDA will go off and sort of do their investigation of it. And so just in terms of the guidance provided, we did find these several examples. And so we did recommend the IRS to sort of come up with a single reporting message and then sort of update all of its guidance with that single message. Yeah, you may have just partly answered this, but given all those options and guidance provided, overall, you all you know made recommendations, but were the discrepancies only in the fact that not every IRS employee knew about these options or they just weren't functional? Yeah, one of the things we did during the evaluation was we actually went out and visited taxpayer assistance centers to sort of talk to those frontline employees and get a feel for, you know, do they understand how to report incidences and, you know, what to do in those situations. And what we found is there's sort of some, I guess there's some uncertainty, you can call it, that they're not quite sure what to do. And so we sort of guided them, you know, to the guidance on their website as well as, you know, some of the training material. And so what we made recommendations, at least to the IRS, was, you know, maybe create like a poster that sort of lays out all the reporting options that you can hang somewhere in the employee areas of all these tax centers. And then the IRS also has these little, I guess, wallet size carrying cards that has reporting instructions that the employees can carry with them. So we sort of, we recommended that they make that available to all employees just so they get a better feel for what to do, you know, when these situations occur. And just out of curiosity, you mentioned that you talked to some frontline employees. Did you actually talk to any people who were victims of assaults or threats against them? Uh, it just so happens that one of the folks that we did talk to had gone through an incident about maybe uh, six or seven months prior. So she actually knew exactly what to do because she went through that. And she did, you know, express a lot of concern, uh, as did many of the other employees we talked to, because it was sort of a topic they didn't think about. But when we sort of engage them, you know, you know, we asked them if this is something they're very concerned about. And, and they were to some degree, uh, but they understood that, you know, there's a job to do. You know, you're going to deal with taxpayers, you know, of all different mindsets. So you sort of have to just be aware. Interesting. And so, you know, this is a crime uh, and I'm not a lawyer, but I'm going to guess that assaulting an IRS agent is (laughs) or even making threats is probably against some sort of federal law. What stage does the prosecutorial side of things enter the picture and what role does the IRS play in facilitating that? 
Yeah, so that that actually goes a little beyond what we looked at in terms of just the reporting aspect of these things, because mm-hmm. that's more of the tail end as it's being worked. I will tell you that, yes, TIGDA is sort of the law enforcement uh, agency over the IRS, and it is a federal crime to I mean, forcibly assault, resist, impede, oppose, or intimidate, you know, federal employees, as well as those dealing with the IRS. And so they're the ones who will take that, I guess, the investigation and start uh, working it from a criminal perspective. You know, and the, uh, the things that we looked at were more the administrative side on what they can do within the IRS to ensure that, you know, this taxpayer who did something, you know, to an employee is sort of uh, recognized in his or her account. Yeah, it's something that probably not a lot of folks think about in speaking with you, you know, that the IG body is a law enforcement entity that can make arrests. Is that correct? That is correct. Anything else that we didn't touch on that you think is important for the conversation? You know, at the end of the day, the whole goal of our evaluation was sort of taking a look at all these different processes and guidance and what have you. And it really comes down to, it, you know, once the assault and threat are confirmed and there's a nexus to tax administration, you know, the IRS has to post these indicators on these tax accounts. And, and the whole reason they do that is so any other employee in the future who sort of accesses that tax account, this indicator will pop up and say, hey, just as a warning, you know, this person has previously assaulted or threatened another employee, you know, so you want to take the necessary precautions if you have to deal with that taxpayer. So really, it's it's for the protection of the employees. You, know, you can't protect them, you know, when it first occurs because no one can sort of suspect that. But once it occurs and it's confirmed, you know, the IRS takes the necessary steps. Ken Sagara is acting manager of TIGDA's Office of Inspections and Evaluations. We'll post this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can 
bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um... This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. 
and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years, and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me, and I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency, and I think there are about 20 people in the room, and I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out 
certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.